One of my favorite episodes of Radiolab covers a a pretty famous story um, from October 30th, 1938. And on that evening, as people were winding down, they were listening to the radio, as you did back in the day, and many were listening to what's called the Chase Sanborn Hour, and it was a bunch of variety show, audio of music and things like that. And at that moment, many people probably changed their channel as the show wound down and changed to a, a slightly less popular show, but it was a, a bit of a news program. And when they tuned to it, they, the news program had kind of broken in with some alerts about some things happening in space, that there had been some explosions on Mars and in space, and they weren't sure what they were. And the radio program would cut back, and then they'd play some more music, and people would kind of wonder what happened. And then they cut back in with another breaking report that something had crash-landed on Earth down in Grover's Mill, New Jersey, not far from, from Princeton. But then they would cut back and go back to the music and the radio program. And then they would cut back in, and a field reporter for the radio station happened to be out on the field. And Military officials and police officers were out wondering what this thing that crash-landed on Earth was. And they go out to sea, and they see that it's this saucer of some sort, this kind of spaceship that had crashed into Earth. And then they got back to music and radio program, and, but then they went back, and activity started happening. This little creature started coming out with big, round eyes. And, and the, the commentator was giving sort of almost like a play-by-play news experience. And the creature comes out, and you hear that the military officials are showing up, and they have white flags, as if aliens would even know what that meant. And uh, they show up uh, wanting peace with whatever this creature is that showed up on Earth. And then uh, it would play. Here's a sound clip of, of that moment. Wait a minute, something's happening. A shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught up by the woods. The fires, the, the gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles are spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. And so that's what people heard that night. Like, this alien taking out this, in case you couldn't make it through, because it's a very old recording, but this alien taking out like basically like a ray gun of some sort and starting to kill people, and then the, the broadcast just goes blank. And so if you tuned in, this is what you heard. At the height of sort of like German warfare and attacks too. So there's already this heightened emotion. People, were, kids were trained to hide under desks and bombs were falling in England. And so this is all sort of the tension that everybody lived in. And it caused people in this area of New Jersey to like flee their homes, call police. Like people were, people were in hysteria in this moment. Now, all of this is just H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, as told on a radio program. And Orson Welles um, thought it would make a great radio program. (laughs) 
not knowing the mass hysteria he was going to cause. And it actually got replicated in Ecuador and like went way worse than what happened in New Jersey. People were killed, the whole radio station was burnt out. It was, it was pretty intense. That story is even crazier. But um, yeah, I, I tell you this story because I think there's something to the way lies or false truth can, can alter reality. That at some point, all these people were tuning in, not knowing, and, and to be clear, the radio show included a little snippet on the front end saying this is a fictional drama, but so many people had finished up the more popular radio show and then tuned into the thing without the disclaimer that they thought all of this was real. And the way that sort of lies or mistruths can actually wreak, uh, wreck a lot of havoc on people's lives. And it's easy to laugh at the Orson Welles story, but it's, it's harder to admit just how easy it is to, to be kind of swept up in this. I mean, even at the same time in history, intelligent and educated Germans were rounding up Jews and feeding them to incinerators. Politicians in the American South, educated politicians, were forcing a young Rosa Parks to ride in the back of the bus because she was black. Hollywood elites out in California were smoking packs upon packs of cigarettes because the cigarette industry paid them a whole lot of money to do it, thinking, oh, it's fine. It's all over the place. And it's tempting to think, oh, they're but fools, and they're so gullible and naive. Not like us. We're too sophisticated for any of that. We're too enlightened to be fooled by any of that. We would never let politicians or even the media play on our emotions and our desires and fears and for their own ends, right? That doesn't happen today. And sometimes we have what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, that we're finally at the age where we are more enlightened than everybody that came before us. Even sociologists speak of it as the myth of progress that so many of us buy into, sort of Western dogma that we're still heading towards that utopian future. When we shed all the constraints of ignorant thinking, like religion, but this is the battle that I think many of us are in, this battle of ideas that exist out there, of whether what is really true and what's the truest true. And Scripture will use um, terminology that, that is a bit warfare-oriented. Now, I think our Savior had a bit of a, a love-the-enemy kind of teaching, and so... Uh, Sometimes there's this tension around how we think about the warfare language. But particularly in the New Testament, it carries with it a lot of more internal battles. There's this internal warfare. And it causes us to ask all sorts of questions around why is the world the way it is? Why do I feel so tugged between different thoughts? Why do I, why are there things I really want to do and I don't do those things, but the things I don't want to do, I still do those things? Why are there steady streams of bad news in my mind all the time? all the money, technology, and education and progress, we can't seem to fix anything. Why do I care about that? Why do I care about this? Why? All of those things just pull at us all the time. And our souls are in this battle of ideas. And not all of them are true. And behind the ones that are lies, I think Scripture kind of paints the picture. Like and Jesus in John 8 will speak to these people. and He, he speaks of the one who is the father of lies. He is identified throughout Scripture as the accuser, the evil one, the tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver, or a dragon and serpent that deceives. And I know some of you are like, oh, not one of these sermons. 
talk about Satan and the devil and all this kind of stuff. Well, as the wonderful Kaiser Soze once said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And I think some of that's true. Now, there might be some goofy imagery and stuff like that, and we'll wade through a little bit of that as we go. But at some point, there's some reality that there's evil. There really is an evil force or presence to this world. And it is a battle with our souls and our minds. Let's start with the text, and we'll unpack it as we go. Starting at verse 13. So Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus answered him, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to, f- for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So John, um, certainly he'll, he will play out in all the Gospels as being the one who's constantly deferring to Jesus. It's constantly always going, Jesus is the greater thing than me. And, and so we see that certainly here, that, that um, John once again tries to defer, saying, no, 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 like, Jesus, you're the authority, not me. I should be baptized under your authority. So the by uh, can mean under the, under the, the authority of uh, language here. Now, to be clear, does Jesus need to repent of any sin f- so that he could receive forgiveness? No, right? I mean... We're still early in the Gospels, but we have enough Christian theology to, to hopefully agree with that. He's not standing there going, I need to be baptized in the name of the Father and myself and the Holy Spirit, right? That's not what's happening in this text. But part of baptism in that time, and particularly Jewish baptism, and even more so in Essene baptism, going through this process, part of what baptism would have, would have communicated was that it was a, sort of a statement to the watching world that, hey, um, I am choosing to live obediently what God has actually called us to do. That it was sort of this public statement saying, look, if you watch me, as I leave these waters, as I live out this life, as I do these things, I will be watch- walking this path correctly. Now, of course, no, no human does that perfectly. But perhaps in Jesus we will. But when he makes that statement, let this be so, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. So as I go through this, I'm going to fulfill all of what right living will be. So John, no, I need to go through this. This will be the pointer for people to know, watch me. Because I'm going to live out perfectly what God has designed for humanity to do. And then I think Matthew is doing... um, a bit of a, a work here to, to put these stories in a certain pattern, in a certain way, uh, even with the temptations. Because there's a paradigm that exists throughout Scripture around water and spirit, God speaking in that moment. Where else have we heard some of those kind of terms? Moses, yeah, even older. We'll get to the Moses one. What else? There's water and spirit. What? Noah, yeah, we'll get to the Noah one, and then creation, or someone finally say it. Yeah, going, going back and back and back. And what you find is sort of this paradigm set up in Scripture that at some point there's sort of a chaotic world. And in Genesis 1, that's what we get. We get the world is formless and void, and there's the deep, which always symbolizes sort of a, a chaotic world. And so you have this lack of order in the world. And then you have water, so... 
The, the spirit is hovering over what? The, the water, so the deep. And the spirit is the ruach of God. And all of this is existing. And then what happens? God speaks, right? God, God speaks. And then what was chaos starts becoming ordered. God starts the process of ordering uh, this world in a certain way. And then by day six, what, what does God do? Who does God create at the end of day six? Adam and Eve, right? And he calls them into partnering with him to go f- keep doing the work that he's doing. Go to the ends of the earth and take whatever the chaos is left and keep ordering it the way I've designed this world to be. It's as if God starts the process and enlists humanity to help him finish it. And then in that garden, we also now find Adam and Eve with the question of, will they do it? (laughs) Will they finish this task? And chapter three happens, and the serpent happens. They're tested, and they fail, right? Cool. All right, next major story with water. We'll just use water as the paradigm. No, right? Okay, was the world in chaos? Yes, that's how it's painted, right at the beginning of chapter six. Everybody was doing what they thought was great. Everybody just, it was not good. It wasn't, wasn't a good time in the, the world's history. Is there water? Yes, a lot of it, right? That's why it's called a flood. So God pours out the water, and then as the waters sort of end, we find that there is a, a wind of God, which is the same word. It's the word ruach. So wind, spirit, and um, breath are all the same word, both in Hebrew and Greek, which is even more fascinating. But <clears throat> ruach um, happens. God speaks. God tells Noah, okay, you, you, you should leave the boat. I need you to go back out into the world. And not only that, but we get the partner reestablished moment. Because Noah, God will speak to Noah and basically give the same commands he gives to Adam and Eve and say, look, be fruitful, multiply, like go do what I originally created humanity to go do. Now, does Noah and his family succeed? Not, not really. Like, actually, the very next story is that Noah gets really drunk and something weird happens with his son and his wife, right? It's the very next story. So yes, like, there's a failure once again. Okay, next major story with a body of, large body of water. The Exodus, right? <clears throat> and so what happens? Is there chaos as they're fleeing Egypt? Pharaoh's armies are coming down upon them. It is a chaotic scene, okay? It's obviously water, which is the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea. Now, when God splits that sea, what do we find? A, a wind, once again, a ruach that actually is the splitter of the sea. God instructs, God speaks to his people saying, no, go through. And, and, he, and he, once again, reestablishes a partner because he will say, all right, now you guys are going to be a, a priesthood for me. You're going to be this holy nation. And he will go on to establish that partnership. Do they succeed in what they do? No. I mean, Israel has some wins, but they have plenty of losses too. And they're tested and they fail multiple times, both either through 1519 or through the rest of their whole story. Okay, another, another story, a body of water. If we keep going, at least a river. Yeah, right, we get to Joshua. And Canaan is in what? It's just chaos. All the Canaanite religions, all the Canaanite groups, 
The land is chaotic. There are all sorts of injustices and everything happening in the land. It's clearly a water and the Jordan River that they now have to cross over. God speaks. God says, look, this is, this is what I want you to do. I want you to carry, carry the ark a certain way with the priests. I need you all to go through. This is, this is going to be your land. And their job is to bring order, right? Their job is to go into the land, establish order, establish the nations, go do their thing. That's the expectation. How well does it go? They never kick out all the groups that they were supposed to kick out. And like, basically one story into the story, you find Aiken and he's kind of taking stuff and he has to die. Like it, it turns into a failure pretty quick. And so, do we find the same thing? When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up in from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Okay? This world, it's chaos. Sin has wrecked havoc on all of humanity. Right? Do we find water? Yeah. <laughs> Baptism. That's what's happening. Spirit over those waters. Yes. Spirit's hovering like a dove. He even uses the same language to speak of the, the Noah um, parallels. Does God speak into this moment? Yes, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the spirit comes and rests on Jesus, and, um, it's, which is hinted at in Isaiah. And there's a quote from Psalm 2 or, Psalm, or Isaiah 42. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And that quote will come up again uh, later in Jesus' life as well. But I would argue what Matthew is doing and crafting and telling and including this story and in phrasing the story the way he does is calling us back once again to the story of old. Hey, remember when God brought order out of chaos and he, and he partnered with humanity to go do that, but ah, we, we failed the first time. And remember Noah, God sort of reset creation and, and there was water and spirit and, and God once again wanted to bring shalom, his, his rule and his reign into this world, but once again, we failed. And remember, he drew out us as a nation and, and, and once again, he, he wanted to bless all the nations. He wanted to bring ultimately his order and a blessing to this whole world through his chosen people and we failed again. But now we got a new creation story. Will it be different? Will it have a different outcome? Will this one really be able to bring God's shalom to this world in a way we've never seen before? Will this human fail like Adam or succeed? And I think Matthew is drawing us into that story because what should we expect next? Tests, right? It's the exact same thing that happened every single time. And I'm sure John the Baptist watching Jesus walk into this desert was sitting there going, I don't know about this. <laughs> Will he succeed? Now let's do a short setup just to help our imaginations because I think sometimes we get a, a little bit more pagan than we get biblical about things. When you imagine Satan, what comes to mind? Yeah, sometimes a big red guy, hooves and horns, right? Snake, which may not be the, the, the worst image in the world, but I think the Bible certainly uses that. But sometimes there's these just different ideas. What about angels? What do we tend to think of when we think of angels? Yeah, wings and feathers and sometimes halos, beams of light, all this kind of stuff. And once again, just for our helpfulness, when we say the word wilderness, what do we think of? Too often, yeah, we think of like REI camping in 
Denver or a Colorado mountain forest, right? Um, this is rocky, desert, brown, dry places. Cool? Just to help our visuals. Okay, let's clarify. Uh, when we encounter the word Satan in Scripture, it is a title and not a name, just for clarity's sake. The evil one is never given a formal name in Scripture, and I think that's very intentional by God revealing things to us. Jesus is the only name that matters. Satan's not even going to give it a name. He's the accuser, he's the adversary, and he's given all sorts of other names throughout Scripture. But that's what Satan means, the one who comes against Nowhere in scripture are we told that angels or demons have wings. Um, just so you know, they're seraphim, but they're the serpent-like creatures that fly around the throne. But angels themselves are constantly actually sometimes like not even known that they're angels. Like people will interact with them like they're regular people, um, not expecting that they would be flying around with wings. So like, not like John Travolta or something like that. Um, I dated myself for the reference to Michael there. Um, dogma? I don't know. Um, and there's visual imagery and revelation of a dragon and stuff like that. Maybe that comes from some of that. But for many centuries, people have painted Satan in all sorts of different ways through the years. Sometimes he was like horns and hoofs. Sometimes he was a monk. For, for like 300 years, Satan was depicted as a monk in the desert uh, from the 1200s to the 1500s. You have Dante's Inferno that will inform a whole lot of what we think about Satan and evil. Uh, the very beast-like idea. Uh, but most of those ideas, particularly of him with horns and hooves, is totally pagan, just so we know. Pan was the, this evil god that had hooves on his feet. Uh, some of the horn imagery uh, really tied into uh, evil uh, eastern gods. Um, I do think Revelation picks up on a little bit of that, but I don't think that's the picture we should necessarily have in our imaginations. So now, now let's enter the story. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. So he headed out to the desert area to be tempted by the devil. So did the devil coax Jesus out into the wilderness? No. This is very much the Spirit that's leading Jesus along. Once again, going out into the wilderness, just like a story we know before of maybe a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke that leads the people into their time of testing. And the word testing or tempted um, here is parazzo. And actually often in scripture it gets translated as testing. I think that's a more proper translation often. Because in the desert, particularly if Jesus is sort of this Israel picture, we'll find out in Deuteronomy it's, it's, it's so that God could test what was in their hearts. So we find out Deuteronomy 8. What are you made of, Israel? What have you learned during your time with me so far? Are you really trusting all that I've instructed you to? It's sort of the test. It's to see what the substance, what are you made of? And Jesus now is going through the same process. What is this Jesus really made of that we are just encountering on chapter 3? And after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, where else do we know of a good period of time that's about 40 days or years? Exodus, yeah. Israel will wander for 40 years in the desert. Where else do we also see 40 days and 40 nights? Yeah, we see uh, the flood is 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, Moses goes up to the mountain and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Elijah goes and fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. So you see some parallels to these characters that are essential in Israelite history. And the story even showcases the exact opposite of most of these other characters, right? Adam had everything he could want in abundance, except for one tree he wasn't allowed to eat from. 
Noah had planted a garden. Things were going well uh, after he got out of the boat. The Israelites had manna and quail, more than enough uh, to survive off of. All had abundance. But in this moment of tempting, Jesus has nothing. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So once again, a tempter who's coming along and enticing someone to eat something, right? We should feel some callbacks of somebody going along, hey, why don't you eat this? Make yourself some food. Go ahead and eat. And what will Jesus do? He answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus calls back to, anybody got a footnote? This is good Bible practice. You get to an Old Testament reference. Deuteronomy, yes. It's a callback of when Moses is retelling in the book of Deuteronomy their experience of walking through the desert and the lessons they learned and the things that God taught them. And one of the things that God taught them during their test in the wilderness was this very truth, that they had to learn that God was going to have enough for them, that, and that his word is what they would follow, that he'd be like a, a, sh- a shepherd speaking to his sheep, and the sheep would respond to his word. That's one of the major lessons I think that the desert was meant to teach them. Now, I think there's another layer to this. At the end of the day, animals live on bread alone, Right? you're an animal, you need food, you need to sleep, and you need water. That's kind of it. Most animals can survive off just about that. And when they want to eat, they eat. When they want to drink, they drink. And when they want to, whatever else they need to do, they do it. Now, what I think this text also starts drawing out is something more. That yes, man, man lives on bread, but not that alone. There's, there's more. And we are designed for more than just mere survival. I would actually argue Adam naming all the animals is a, is a bit of a call to that, that we are more than just the animals. We're designed for more than that. We're designed for things like purpose. And our identity is more than just bodily hungers. But to truly live, we need a word from the, the maker of us, of who we are and what we're here for. We need that word. We can't just live on bread. We need something deeper. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, uh, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, uh, once again, just to help our imaginations, um, the Old Testament constantly has characters who physically remain in one place while also being swooped in to have visions of, of what is somewhere else. Uh, we, so like we see Ezekiel exist in one place, but yet being able to like go through the temple and see the temple and all these kind of things. I, I, don't, I don't think you have to make the case that Jesus is physically put on top of the temple. I think this could be certainly um, very much these sort of visions, almost like a Christmas carol um, and the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future that sort of swoop uh, the main character along. So there's a new technique here to quote the Bible, right? Footnote, once again, Psalm 91. And Psalm 91, if you were to go back and read it, uh, which, once again, this audience would just be able to recite it for you. It's a beautiful poem about trust and faith, about the presence of God, the one um, who looks to Yahweh to be delivered. It's meant to bring 
the, the audience, the listener, to a place of prayer and trust and dependence on God when difficult circumstances happen. All that's true. And it's fascinating because Satan takes Jesus to the hotbed of God's presence, <laughs> to the temple itself. And Satan almost like triple dog dares uh, Jesus here to throw himself down. And he's like, hey, look at the scriptures. Like at your own scriptures, Jesus. If God really loves you, yeah, of course he'll protect you. Of course. So go ahead. Like, let's just make that clear to you, to me. Go, go ahead and do it. Now, just so we're aware, using scripture out of context may be a really good tool of the devil. Because that's what happens. Like Psalm 91 does not offer a safety net to rescue everyone from the consequences of reckless behavior. This is not the context of Psalm 91 at all. It's God's promise to protect those who make him their dwelling place, those who call on him, those who hold fast to him in love. And, and not only that, but even Satan chooses to leave out a few words. And yet Jesus knows scriptures and knows how to respond. And once again says, it is written... You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's like a karate chop back to Satan. By There's a word. It's like a counterpunch. And once again, we go back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 6, Israel's struggling on their way to Sinai, and they're learning their lessons, and God's shepherding them and teaching them. And one of the things they learn is you shall not put the Lord your God to the test because they're grumbling and they're saying, hey, let's go back to Egypt. And, and God, if you're really real, you'll show us that you're present. And they're trying to almost put God in their submission under their sort of um, uh, rule. But Jesus here is trusting the Father. It's like, no, I don't make my Father perform tricks. It's not how this works. And if Jesus is going to lay down his life, he'll do it as Yahweh does. As Yahweh instructs in accordance to his Father's will. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. So it's a bit of a different technique here. No longer, hey, if you're the son of God, we don't get that intro. But we do get a temptation about Jesus' very destiny. We will find out by the end of all the scripture, like the victory had here is that all the kingdoms and their glory will bow down. But they will be his. But I think with Satan's phrasing here, we're asked to consider a real possibility about social structures, about power structures, because he's, he's saying, I can give you these, which would imply that he has some infiltration in all of them. As if the tester is saying he has major influence in how this world runs. Now, if some of you doubt that there's legitimate evil in the world, we, we don't have to look very far. Like the last, like the 1900s, as was probably one of the more secular of the last hundred years, certainly we are more, even more so now, but even the wars that were fought were some of the most secular wars that were. And it was the bloodiest century in history. It's evil. And there's a reality working in and through the structures that we make Strong eating strong, or strong eating the weak, might makes right, efficiency at the expense of people, all sorts of different ways that this world, the structures exist. And Jesus is here to deal with evil. That's very true too, both personal and I would argue wholesale, systematically. And Jesus is offering power and glory right away. 
But is this the kind of king that we have? And Jesus says to him, be gone, Satan. <laughs> it doesn't start with, it is written. Seems like Jesus might be a little bit frustrated with the enemy at this point. And just says, be gone. Jesus will actually give a very similar rebuke to one of his disciples who also wants Jesus to sort of go to Jerusalem and go set up shop and go have his military victory. And Jesus says, no way. For it is written, you shall not worship the Lord your God. Uh, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Once again, going back to Deuteronomy. The lessons learned in the desert. In some ways, what Jesus is calling out here is that he's not going to do it the way that Satan wants to present to him. And the way that Jesus is going to do it is incredibly upside down. It's incredibly counterintuitive. The same rebuke that he'll give Peter. Jesus isn't going to the capital of Israel to storm it with conquest and to establish himself on the throne. He's going to the capital to die. And his coronation ceremony is going to be the cross and his victory in Jerusalem will be over the grave. And that's so counter to how Peter thinks. It's the temptation that that Satan has to just fast track Jesus. Let's just get there quick. You can have all the power. Just go. You got to worship me. But you can have the power. Jesus says no. It's God and God alone. It's God's way and God's way alone. That's what we have in front of us. And the devil left him. And behold, angels or messengers came and were ministering to him. So how does all this connect? Because we have this wilderness test and where Israel failed, where Noah and his family failed, where uh, uh, Adam failed, where Joshua and company failed, that Jesus has a oneness a connection to the Father that's just utterly different than any human being that has existed on earth. Because he's not like any human being that's existed on earth. And the heart of God and what existence is about is lived out in Jesus, the fullness of humanity who conquers what none of us can actually conquer. And I think there's a paradigm or a formula, though I hate formulas, but that Jesus does provide here. And it's really a question from page two on in scripture. And that is, what voice are we going to listen to? What voice is saying the truest true of our world? And we still have these ideologies, these ideologies that come from Satan or evil or lies just about what reality is really about. Right? Voice one saying, you know what? Life is just about desires. If you're hungry, eat. If you're thirsty, drink. If you want to satiate whatever physical desires, just go for it. You're being repressive if you don't do those things and oppressive if you keep others from doing it. All the problems in life just come out from not just going after your cravings. So just go after your cravings. It'll be fine. And then voice two sweeps in. I will provide you with what you need. And just enough. Daily bread. But not everything is beneficial. Even some of the stuff your body craves, it's not always beneficial for you. And the pursuit of more and more and more and more will destroy you in the process. Like you read any autobiography in the last like 40 years 
And that's the story of like every autobiography. Like it's not a good autobiography, it probably doesn't include that. I got everything I needed and it wasn't what I thought it would be. And voice one comes back in. If you want something, make it happen. You control your own world a destiny. You want to be like your friend on Instagram who has it all? Well, book your trip or move where you want or just go be merry now in whatever way or format you think. Tomorrow we die, so go get it. My voice two of, look, I've appointed you times and boundaries. There's no moments that are just luck or coincidence. And if your season feels like delay or struggle, maybe that's the biggest moment of teaching for you. And trying to rush through things in life or to get through suffering quickly misses out on the very purpose of those things. Can you wait on me? Trust me, even if you can't see the outcome, even if the waiting is hard. Voice one comes in, don't consider others so much, you do you. It really is the rich and powerful who control things, so go for that, no matter the cost, and even at the expense of others. Others are the enemy, and you need to make sure you win. Look out for number one, because no one else will. Might is right. You need to defeat or squash anyone who opposes you. And voice two says, it's the lowly and the humble who inherit the kingdom, who are great. You need to be almost like a child. I'm near the brokenhearted. I bless the ones that the world seems to have abandoned. They will be honored in the end. Faithfulness is not about your accomplishments. It's about your nearness to me. Nearness is greater than all the things done in my name. And the greatest picture of love, oh, that I would lay my life down. Go through the shame of the cross for you, my friends, so you can be where I am. And it's so counter to the narratives and the ideals and the truths that we try to hear from this world. And Jesus' methodology is just to be able to know what is true of this world that God says. Like he just goes here. And when the lies of the world keep saying this is what the world's about, he goes, that's not true. Like God has said what this world's about. In a weird push for classes, it's kind of a good moment That's why we have classes. So that we would sit down and go, you know what? What is really true? What is the truth true about marriage? What is the truth true about Jesus from the Gospel of Luke? What is the truth true about how honor and shame and those dynamics play out in Scripture and actual lives? Because at some point, like, you have someone like Satan who quotes text but does that out of context. And I don't know how well, I mean, I don't know how well I would be able to be like, yeah, you, you did that out of context. That's not what that chapter says. I know my, I know it. I, I know what God said in, in Psalm 91. I can, I can correct you, Jesus, or correct you, Satan. So what would the voice be? And I want to back us up to Jesus' baptism, too, as a way to kind of wrap up. Let me ask a question. What all has Jesus accomplished up until his baptism? Anything? No, like nothing. He was born. And even that, that was Mary's doing, right? <laughs> Jesus didn't have a lot to do with that. He was born and he was raised, but Matthew doesn't give much of his childhood. Luke gives us a tiny glimpse of a piece of his childhood. That's it. And yet this, at, at this moment where Jesus has not healed anybody that we know of. He hasn't gone to the cross. He hasn't done all the messianic things that we are about to encounter. God speaks for everybody can hear it and says, look, 
This is my son. I love him. And I am well pleased. And I think that's a fascinating paradigm for us. Because one of the most tremendous mysteries of our faith is that we are in Christ, that there's something uniting us to Christ. And in many ways, everything that is his becomes ours. We're co-heirs with him. And so these words, which I think are at the heart of the gospel, are true for all of us. That before we've had an amazing week, before we've been obedient to anything, before we've failed, whatever it may be, that God speaks to us and says, you know what? I love you. And in you, I'm well pleased. If our faith is in Jesus, that is our truth as well. And perhaps it's the most crucial voice we need to hear today, before we've done anything, before we've totally screwed up or totally killed it this week, before we've faithfully followed or wavered and floundered, that we be reminded of this truth, that in Christ, God loves you and is well pleased. Haven't done anything, God loves you and is well pleased. You failed this week just miserably, God loves you and is well pleased. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet, that can be your truth today. Not, I need to go clean up my life before I can come to Jesus. No, God loves you and is well pleased. That's the voice we have to hear. The love of our Father to say, sons, daughters, I love you. I'm well pleased. And I think too often we have a view of our Father with his arms crossed, frustrated that we're not all that we could be. Good thing Jesus was all that we could be. And is totally satisfied because of Jesus' work on our behalf. That's the good news of the gospel of all that was accomplished on the cross for us. And so we'll move into communion, which is really the the pathway to get us there. Jesus sitting down with his disciples and saying, this this is what's going to happen tomorrow. That ultimately, I'm going to die. It's going to be like that Passover lamb. And that my blood will do an accomplishment that you guys didn't expect. And it'll be for the forgiveness of sins. So that you, my disciples, can be where I am. You can be under the love of the Father. You can be united to each other and to me. You can start living out what it means to truly be human. Yes, you still have your flesh. You're still going to stumble through this. But I'm going to put my spirit in you. And you, for once, are going to start living this out, however imperfectly. And that's good news. And we can move forward with a God who says, you know what, I am well pleased. No matter the day.